Hello, and welcome to the Helping Up podcast, all about addiction, recovery, and grace. I'm Vic King, chaplain at Helping Up Mission. We are on the 1000 block of East Baltimore Street, Baltimore City, Maryland. Today, we have a conversation between Pastor Gary Byers, who's our deputy director, and James Wentworth. James is a recent graduate of Helping Up, and he shares his story of running, trying to escape his addiction, wandering across the U.S., a journey that eventually led him here to Baltimore to Helping Up Mission. We hope you enjoy it. All right, so this is James Wentworth. How old? 35. Uh, how long you been in Baltimore? 11 months. Drug of choice over the recent years? Heroin and crystal meth. And drug of choice in the past? Pretty much anything. And you started at what age? 17. That's when my grandmother passed away. Yeah, so it was a, it was a, a trauma that, that led you into, into using. And there you are towards the end of your high school years. What made her so close and special to you? What was what was the deal? What was your relationship? She helped raise me. Okay. So my mom was a single mother, and my mom remarried to my, my dad, my stepdad, when I was five. So both my parents were working full-time, and she took care of me. Yeah. How about your biological father? No knowledge. No knowledge. And uh, you and your stepfather did okay. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that there was anything bad. It was just she was gone and she was so important. You you really didn't unpack this truth as how much it impacted your life and led to addiction and everything else till you got here. Yes, sir. So um, how did Grandma pass? Um, she It was a Sunday morning. She did her, her normal Sunday morning routine, went to church, came back got the newspaper, and then she would read the newspaper on the couch. And the um, the doctor said that she literally had a small heart attack while she was sleeping. Wow. And she never woke up. Wow. So she passed on peacefully, and uh, we know where she went. Yes, sir. So that's all good. But at 17, that didn't do you any good. No. When she passed, my, my father, I kept calling him because I had a soccer game that day. And she, when she said she would be at a game and she didn't show up, then I knew something was wrong. So she didn't come to the game, and it was weird. I, I think this was the first time I had, like, a spiritual experience. We were so connected. During the game, it was me and the keeper, just a one-on-one breakaway, and I, I went to take a shot. And as I did, I caught a cramp in my quad, and I fell, like, face-first into the ground. We figured up it was around the time of, of her death. Mm. And so after the game, my parents went to her house, and then that's when they found her. So after that, how did things unravel? Pretty much it was all about who was going to get what. You know, greed started coming out, and they started accusing my mom of running credit cards up, um, just all this stuff. And me being 17, I was trying to properly grieve the death of my grandmother, and I was witnessing this happen and just watch it just tear my mom apart and I was to the point where I couldn't even look at my mom without seeing my grandmother you know and Mm -hmm. then uh, to to watch her just go through this so I I started developing a lot of hate as a high school athlete did you do any kind of chemicals up to that point no I mean I had drank a couple times after she passed and you know I started smoking marijuana 
and then would really just try anything from LSD to was it pills. anger at at God and the world, or was it more to try to numb the pain, or both? I think it was both. I was mad, and I, I turned my back on God. Uh, and so you believe in your in your childhood years with your mom and your grandma, you really did have a spiritual connection I did. To, to God, and it was real. But and we, we know about that. We Things don't go the way we want, and we turn our back on God, and especially as a teenage guy, you know, we don't know how that goes. So um, we played soccer all the way through. Did it impact your, your uh, sports career in your senior year? My grades did because I started after she passed, I started smoking pot, marijuana, and drinking a lot. So I didn't perform well in the classroom. I just didn't care anymore. But I still excelled on the soccer field. Okay. Um, I, I was able to get a scholarship, a soccer scholarship. I didn't want to take the scholarship at first. And then one of my best friends was killed in a car accident, drinking and driving accident, um, my night of graduation. Mm. So at the last minute, I decided. So I left Knoxville, took the scholarship. I was a redshirt freshman because my GPA just was at like a 2.4 GPA. And then I failed out after my first semester. One semester. One semester. I went from a 2.4 to a 0.7 GPA. Now, you actually have to try to go to a 0.7 GPA, <laughs> and that would mean trying not to go to class and, and trying to just be as buzzed as you could the whole time. Exactly. All I cared about was women and drinking and playing soccer. So you dropped out a second time. Did you go back to Knoxville again? I did. I moved back to Knoxville for about two months and then got the brilliant idea that I would move to Colorado. And I moved out there and was living with my roommate from college and his family for about two months and realized that I was homesick and wanted to move back to Knoxville, so I did. And then that pretty much started um, my career in construction. I, I would have a job for, I would do real well for six months my hands-on learner would master the position, but I was I was drinking and smoking weed the entire time, and then eventually got into pills and cocaine. For the most part, until I came to the mission, my life consisted of just lies. Like I would try to impress people to be cool or fit in, be the popular guy, up until I got here. And that lasted for how long in Knoxville? Um, close to 10 years, and then thought that I would excuse me, move down to Florida and go work for my aunt and uncle and try to, again, run from from everything, from my addiction. And then I got down there, booze, pills. That didn't work out, so I moved back to Knoxville where I was staying with a friend, and then I got the uh, brilliant idea that I would join the military. I actually detoxed off of alcohol while I was in boot camp, and I had the shakes and the tremors so bad that my RDCs at the time were very close to sending me to medical and having me discharged because of that. That was the most clean time I'd ever had in my life, a little over two months. After boot camp, then I moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, I was extremely, I was so proud. Like, graduating the boot camp for me was a huge deal and a huge deal to my parents because I had put them through so much from yeah. the age of 17 up until I'd, I was 31 when I joined. So that's when you left boot camp, you went to D.C. to do the ceremonial guard. Yes, sir. That's, that's quite an honor. I mean, that is special. 
It was. So how long did it take you to screw that up? Um, let's see. A little, a little over a year. Uh, I injured my Achilles tendon uh, marching. Okay. One of the guys kicked me in the back of the hill with his boot, and they diagnosed me with Achilles tendonitis, and then they gave me a bunch of Percocets. That was the beginning of the end. Yeah, and I, and I realized quickly, too, that the military doctors were more than willing to refill my prescription every two or three weeks. You know, that just led boom, boom, boom. And then so what happened is I was I was on the prescription medication. And I started abusing that with alcohol. And then I had met a fellow shipmate who he was going through the same same thing. He introduced me to heroin. And soon as I got a taste of that, oh, man, then it was it was on. I started stealing from my friends, my shipmates. That's what led to me getting discharged was going into one of my buddy's rooms and taking his pills. Taking his pills? Yep. That feeling of guilt and shame and I'm busted, you know. What am I going to do? You know, because my parents thought I was doing really well. They put me in uh, Walter E. Bethesda. They put me on the psych unit, and I detoxed. And then they sent me to a 28-day inpatient treatment facility in Virginia. Did you want to be clean? No. So you, you, you'd passed all that. At one point you were making geographical changes to get clean. You, you, you were gone from that. By the time the, the heroin was introduced to me, I mean, I, I had roughly a four or $500 a day habit. I could have gone home back to Knoxville, but I didn't want to. I, I didn't want to put my parents or, sh- or really have them see how bad it had gotten for me. Yeah. So when I did get discharged, <clears throat> ran again, and this time went to California. That's when the California trip... So when you would make all these geographical changes, were you trying to stop using? Yeah, my intentions were to stop. I figured um, that if I just got out of the situation, then I could get get to a new one and start fresh. And every time something – I would do good for a couple months and then something would happen. Originally, I was going to move to Colorado uh, Springs to move in with my old buddy that I lived with years ago. And he's, he was a cop now and has a wife and had a kid and a baby on the way, and he was willing to bring me in, and I was going to try to find work on the, on the oil rigs. And I stayed there about two weeks before I started drinking, and I found um, his prescription pills and went through that, and he told me that I, I had to get out. Yeah. And he said, where do you want to go? Do you, he said, I'll put you on a bus and I'll send you wherever you want to go. Do you want to go back to Knoxville? I said, no, I didn't. I just didn't want to go home. He bought me a ticket, Greyhound, and sent me to Santa Cruz, California, where I went and met up with a high school buddy and started working on a pot farm. You were done with pot, though. You'd moved on. Oh, yeah. For me, it was about the harder stuff. But see, right when I got discharged from the Navy, they, the, the military doctors had prescribed me Suboxone. And they had given me like a six-month prescription. I had that once I left the military. And as soon as that prescription ran out, I wanted it. I wanted heroin. So you lived off the Suboxone for six months, Mm -hmm. and that was enough. I wouldn't say. I probably went. It was probably two or three months that I ran through a six-month supply. Yeah, I got you. So there we are in in California uh, working on a pot farm, a a legal pot farm. Yes. So when I was up there working on, on the farm... And I, I started getting all this cash. It was nothing for me to just take a hour bus ride into Santa Cruz 
and go down and, and score. I, I was introduced to the black tar heroin out there and then crystal meth. And eventually, like all my other jobs or relationships, self-destruct, I became homeless. That's when it really got bad. That's when I started um, injecting the heroin and the crystal meth. And first, my first arrest ever was right after I put a needle in my arm. Put a needle in your arm and broke out in handcuffs. I did. It seemed like not even a couple hours later. I've always been the type of guy that I want to do when I, what I want to do when I want to do it. And I think it, I, was, I was meant to go through that to, to help me with my patience. Because spending time locked up in California definitely helps someone become a patient person. <laughs> so uh, your last lockup was n- number... So I had a total of like 22 arrests, and it was my fourth six-month sentence. So my last arrest was June 27th of last year, and my sobriety date is June 28th of 2015. Mm-hmm. I was completely done. I was tired of looking over my shoulder to see if the police were after me for an open warrant because, you know, I would steal anything, bicycles. I would walk into Costco, Safeway, and steal whatever I could to try to support my habit. And it got so bad that I couldn't even go into a store anywhere in Santa Cruz without them pinpointing me. And from the previous arrests, I mean, my face was all over the news for Thief of the Month and all this other shenanigans. I had gotten released the time prior on uh, December 20th and was supposed to get on a bus and be home before Christmas. And I told them I was on my way and I never left. So they're waiting at the at the bus station. I'm still in Santa Cruz getting high. I actually um, had an overdose then. A lot of shame. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. this time was different, though. So I, I went in, and I was going through the, the physical detox. I'd been up for, been awake for 29 days. I used the crystal meth to stay awake, and then I used the heroin to kind of relax and just slow down. So it, it, it was bad. I weighed 157 pounds. I just no hope, no love, no faith, no direction. So I'm, I'm I'm sitting in jail and I'm waiting to go see the judge. I went to the chapel service. This little old lady came in and her and her husband had dedicated multiple years of their their time to come down and just kind of um, witness to the local inmates. I don't know what it, what it was about her, but <clears throat> she was just so sweet and genuine and sincere. She had told me about how her husband had passed and how her daughters had been arrested and just her experience. And she reminded me so much of my grandmother. Yeah. As we were leaving to go back to our unit, she gave me a big hug and she told me, God loves me. So then I went back to my unit and I just laid in my cell on my bunk and, and I just prayed out of just pure desperation. And that's when I asked God to come back into my life and guide me and, and help me. It truly was, I think, it the first spiritual experience I had experienced in a while because all that physical detox, the withdrawals, all that was gone the next morning when I woke up. I started feeling some motivation, some hope. Mm -hmm. And I I called my mom and said, I'm ready. I truly am ready. I'm I'm tired of this lifestyle. I want to come home. And for years, man, for so many years while I was out there, my mom would call me randomly when, when she could, when I did have a phone, and beg me to come home. And I just had no feelings towards that. Like, it meant nothing to me, you know? My addiction, the sickness, the insanity, I had convinced myself I didn't have any friends or family, mm. that my family was this, this street 
crew that I ran with that would steal from me every night, you know. So I, w- I was done, completely done. It had been how long clean now at that point? About 24, 22, 24 days, okay. something like that. Uh-huh. So I felt good. Yeah. I felt amazing, actually. I was like, yeah, I don't think I need to go into treatment. You know, all these <laughs> thoughts are going through my head. And, you know, so, so I called my mom and I said, I don't care where you send me, but I need to go to Knoxville and I need to get out of here like five minutes ago. I just knew that for me at that point that I had to get on a bus and it had to be ASAP. And just to make that decision to get on the bus was was hard. I had become addicted to the lifestyle. I mean, I already yeah. was addicted to the drugs, but the the actual lifestyle. When I got back to Knoxville, I, I spent a night with my parents. So my parents said part of the deal was is that I get into treatment. So they took me down to CARM, the Knoxville Area Rescue Ministries, where I stayed for seven days while they were trying to find me a treatment program because I knew I needed at least six months to a year, something long-term, because I had tried the 28-day inpatient back in the military, and it, it simply did nothing for me other than I went in with a heroin addiction, came out with Suboxone addiction. And the only thing that we worked on while I was there was identifying triggers, and Everything can be a trigger. They said, well, we think we found you a place. How do you feel about Baltimore? And I said, well, I don't really know. I guess that's where God wants me to go. Because at this point, I had handed everything over to him. I had done that when I surrendered when I was in jail. And two days later, I find myself on a bus again, leaving my family again, heading up to Baltimore. My transfer bus was in Richmond, Virginia. I'm sitting there, and I was talking to someone I had met along the way about recovery, and he was an ex-military guy, so we were just talking about it, and I told him I was coming up to Baltimore for treatment. So this random guy overheard my conversation, and he came up to me and said, oh, so you going to Baltimore? You like heroin? And he opens his hand, and he had you know heroin and a, and a clean syringe in his hand. He said, here, man. And for the first time in my life, I was able to say no. And that, that was crazy. But I didn't think twice about it. I just saw it, and I said, no, I'm good. And as soon as I said that, I walked away, and I went, and I called my best friend, Clay, and I called my mom. So um, how hard was it to settle in here? At first, I, I mean, I wasn't scared. I didn't know what I was getting myself into, first of all. But I knew that I was ready to change whatever it took. I, I felt peace. I was able to walk into a place and not be judged and and just kind of all those stressors, just kind of just let that go. And and I was able to lay my head down at night and sleep peacefully for the first time, you know, three years. You talked about it when we first started. Say something again about your your counseling, mental health counselors, therapists here. Uh, that that work with with each guy in the program. Say a little bit about that. So, I had no idea going into the counseling sessions what I was in store for, but I knew that I had to be honest for the first time in my life about it. So I was, and within just a couple sessions, my counselor was able to tell me kind of what my underlying issue was, and that was expressing my feelings and emotions. You know, when I, I'm just a totally different person today. Today I'm sometimes too brutally honest, 
extremely conscious about my decisions that I make on a daily basis and my network that anytime I make a decision, I, I go to my sponsor. Yeah. I go to my mental health counselor. I mean, I, my parents, my best friend, I'm well-connected. But the counseling for me was key. So here we are now, right at the end of your, of your program. Just a lot, of, a lot of cool stuff has happened. I guess probably one of the, the coolest parts was uh, last Thanksgiving. Yep, last Thanksgiving. I came into work uh, the day after Thanksgiving, and, and Drew Diedrich had um, posted on his Facebook page his before picture and his after picture. And, and before I, was the, take, the intake picture here at Helping Up Mission and then his graduation. Photo. Yes, yeah. his, his intake picture, and his was bad. His was really bad. He looked like a ghost. And I saw that, and it inspired me to do the same. I thought just my friends would be able to see it. Mm-hmm. So I, we took the last time I got arrested, my mugshot from California, and then we just put my picture up from the mock interview class that is offered here. And then I just, you know, just commented on where I'm at today and how thankful I am, how I found the fire inside to really change my life. And not even two or three days later, it went viral. A few days later, we look, and there was 13,000 likes, almost 6,000 shares. I started receiving all these friend requests from all people all across the United States and even in other countries asking if I could give them words of encouragement, what inspired me to want to change my life. So around Thanksgiving, right before I, I posted that, I used to hate getting up in front of a group of people and talking. It was one of my biggest fears. And now I do it. And sometimes when I share, I get emotional and I break down. And for me, it's a huge deal. Because to I hit all those emotions for so many years. And now I just, sometimes it's so uncontrollable that it, the tears just start coming out. And I'm most thankful for the, the ability to accept change in my life. Just accepting the change and actually taking that, having the willpower, the honesty, open, and willingness to, to do whatever it takes to, to separate yourself from the old and the new is a beautiful thing. You know, the crazy thing about recovery is, Drew and I were talking a couple weeks ago, is that before, had we not met here in, in this current situation, we never would have given each other the time of day. Mm-hmm. We're two completely different people. I was the, the the jock, the athletic, popular guy, and Drew was more of the artsy fartsy musical musical guy who tends to to keep to himself. And I'll tell you, and it's just it's so crazy because we work together. He's one of my best friends, and he sponsors me. So at times it it can get overwhelming, but you know the honesty, the the love that we have, it's just a beautiful thing. So to have like true friends or, or have someone like, like Drew and, you know, my parents and my friends Clay and Fran and David who throughout the years I had just kind of turned my back on. They never gave up on me when I gave up on myself. And they've never stopped loving me, even when I stopped loving myself. And the fact that they still support me on a daily basis is just remarkable. I mean, that's, that's a spiritual experience in, in itself. I mean, love, like the true meaning of love. 
without close friends like that, I mean, it's just remarkable. I never would have imagined that almost a year ago I would be where I am today.